Hello and welcome to episode two of Inquisitive on Relay FM. My name is Mike Hurley. Today's episode is brought to you by OmniGraffle, Igloo, and Bloggo. My guest today is the man himself, Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Jason. Hi, Mike. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So you are epi- you are the guest of episode two of Inquisitive. You were the guest of episode two of Command Space. Oh, that's beautiful. Although that's I great. I was I think on holiday <laughs> for that episode. Right. So uh, there was even nearly a very slim chance today that I wasn't going to be here, which would have been uh, kind of hilarious. Uh, and there was there wow. was a, there was a conversation that happened today where Stephen might have had to fill in, but it was all okay. I couldn't miss this for the world. So I must get to ask you now, Mr. Jason Snell, what do you like to be known for? Ah, uh, this is such a great question. And I every time I listen, I just listened to the episode, episode one uh, with Marco. And I was I was thinking about this. I I think I am known for writing about Apple um, because I I am known as the Macworld guy because I worked I've worked at Macworld for like 17 years now. It's been a very very long time. And so I think I'm known as the Macworld guy. What I'd like to be known as, I would say, is um, sort of my Twitter bio, which is he he writes and talks and, and stuff about about things like Apple and uh, geek culture and pop culture and stuff. So I'd like to be known, I guess I would say, as a writer, editor, and podcaster, sort of the, the spectrum. I think I'm mostly known as the guy who writes lots of stuff about it about Apple for Macworld. But um, I've been really into podcasting the last few years, doing the incomparable um, and some other stuff. And uh, I love that too. And it's it's great to have created those things um, outside of my day job. Um, and so th- I would like to be known for those things too. So, I mean, you, you mentioned the trifecta there, which I thought was quite interesting, which was writer, editor, podcaster. I feel like that that's the like the Twitter bio trifecta these days, you know? Yeah. Um, so we are. I, I want to talk to you about podcasting today, and this is a conversation that we have had a few times. This is a conversation that I've heard you have a few times. But so I, I want to do some background stuff. Is this a rerun already? I think In episode it might two, be. You're rerunning. Things? I think it oh, might be. I'm just Mike. pulling out my old notes. Uh, no. no, I I have a I have an angle that I want to discuss with you as right. we go into the show about um, the parallels between the beginnings of blogging. And where we currently are with podcasting, and right. to look at those two, having been someone who's been on maybe all of the fences <laughs> for that. So I think I want to start off by understanding a little bit about how podcasting became a thing in your world. So can you remember when and how you first found out about podcasting as a medium? Oh, um. Well, I remember there was that first wave of podcasts when Adam Curry did his uh, thing and there was like iPodder X and all of that in the very, very early days. And um, that was like nobody knew what it was and we thought it might be big, but um, the tools were really terrible and you had to sync it to your iPod. And we started doing a Macworld podcast back then, Sarus Faravar, who now um, works at Ars Technica. He worked at Macworld and he started, we called it the Geek Factor podcast for a while. And then it just became the Macworld podcast after like 10 or 15 episodes and continues to this day and is in the 400s, I think. Um, and I know that my uh, pals and I at uh, – so before I did The Incomparable, I did a, a website called TV. And it, it breaks all the rules of domain naming because it was not – not it was not a .com and it wasn't spelled letter T, letter V. It was T-E-E-V-E-E dot org. 
So just, uh, boy, I learned a lot of lessons about bad domain names then. But anyway, we did a podcast on that site just as an experiment, and um, which I actually revived and turned into an incomparable spinoff lately. But that was like 2006. So that was that first wave where we're like, hey, maybe podcasting is a thing. And it was just like messing around with an entirely new medium and just to see what would happen. And um, and then that was when Apple came out with the podcast stuff in iTunes and they added the podcast tools to GarageBand. And everybody's like, hey, podcasting, it's interesting. And then something happened and I'm not quite sure what, but it like didn't – it was just like a failure to launch. Leo Laporte was doing his thing. But like – it just kind of didn't really happen. And then there was this kind of experimental period. And I remember listening to like um, uh, like when Gruber started, John Gruber started with Dan Benjamin when they were on Hive Logic, And there were some things like that where they're like, there were some podcasts around, but it was just not, it was not a real thing. It was like a, a curiosity. Like it just kind of never caught. And then all of a sudden that second wind happened and and that led to you know that's when we started noticing things like that's when Dan Benjamin started doing five by five and 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 uh, on the tech side that was really injected a lot of like fuel into the engine of pod, of tech podcasting and uh, and then so you know four years later uh, from when I had done the TV podcast the first time or three and a half four years later I started doing the incomparable but. It's it's a weird medium in that there was like this initial discovery period and then it mostly flamed out. And then from the rubble, like three or four years later, things started to um, come together again. Where did your listening habits start? Like what sort of shows drew you in at first? Did you take a break during like kind of the dry period? As well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't listen regularly. So I've been for most of the last 15 years, I've been a bus commuter. And uh, on the bus, I would read, and I can't read and listen to podcasts. That's uh, that's insane. Work. That's so I would yeah. I would I was uh, listening to music and reading, and then on the walks to and from the bus, I was doing a lot of audiobooks actually more than podcasts. Loading the podcasts on the iPod was a pain. I I'm trying to think of what podcasts I listened to, and there were some, but um, none of them. None of them register now. I'm 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 trying to even think. I, I never listened to anything with great regularity until Ricky Gervais did his Ricky Gervais show, which was the first big breakout podcast. And I remember distinctly listening to those episodes and crying with laughter in public, waiting for the bus or walking home. I had one of my uh, kids' teachers say, oh, I see, he told my wife, oh, I see Jason every morning when he's walking to the bus stop when I'm driving to school and he's always smiling and laughing. And it's like, well, that was, that was the <laughs> podcast. That was Carl Pilkington and Stephen Merchant and Ricky Gervais who were making me laugh. Um, and that, so that's what got me started. But really until I had an iPhone and good uh, a, a good podcast client on the iPhone – and uh, and when sort of those five by five shows started hitting, did I become like completely addicted to podcasts to the point where now they have crowded out all other um, all other I've I've got like a bunch of audiobooks and audio plays that are just sitting that I haven't listened to. Uh, they've been sitting there for months now because there are always more podcasts, and I love I love the podcasts now. So that was that was what pushed it over the edge was the convenience of having the apps that auto synced. Because for a while there, I was syncing podcasts to my iPhone, and I have to remember to do it. And iTunes syncing so bad that I remember like plugging in my iPhone ten minutes, fifteen minutes before I was going to leave, and pressing sync and coming back later, and it was like starting step one of five. I'm like, but I have to yeah. go now, and just unplugging it and walking out the door and having nothing. So 
Um, it was a, it was a series of stages, but really having an iPhone that could automatically download podcasts and they were just with me at all times um, and had that great content out there pushed me over the edge. But but it was totally Ricky Gervais. That was that was where it started. Where I where I was anxiously awaiting the next episode of that podcast and. And when he switched to a an iTunes download for a dollar or two dollars an episode, I did that too because that was just really funny um, and nothing you would ever hear on the radio. Did you see the HBO animated version? Oh yeah, yeah, fantastic! Yeah. I love which I, which I, I love, but I've heard I, it was funny because I'd heard all of those routines, so it was sort of like a greatest hits package for me where I'd heard yeah. all of the all of the shows that those were taken from, and then they add the animation on top, and it was absurd and and great, and really not about Ricky Gervais. It was about Carl Pilkington, um, and and it just strange and funny and brilliant and uh yeah I, i've been meaning to go back and listen to those again i think those are all now available as like audiobooks on itunes um and they're, they're so funny if you if if somebody out there hasn't heard those original ricky gervais show podcasts uh they're worth looking up they're, they're delightfully bizarre um just three guys sitting around having a chat and and laughing and they just happen to be three incredibly funny or two incredibly funny and one incredibly strange and nice uh, person so yeah so you mentioned about being um, addicted to podcasts, which yeah. I have to say without a shadow of a doubt, I am. And and people ask me kind of like, you know, I talk to, to friends about them or people that don't really listen to shows as much as I do. And I, I maintain that podcasts are my number one source of entertainment. Huh. For me personally, more than movies, music, they are the thing that if I want to enjoy something, that's what I go to first. Now, you are a man who is well known for your love of movies and TV mm-hmm. shows. Where do podcasts rank in your sort of favorite entertainment scale? I, uh, They have consumed all of my non... Um, how do I phrase this? My... my um, Leisure time, or as you would say, leisure time, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't involve where you know where I can't be reading or I can't be watching something. So, so I, um, I still read books and comics and watch movies and TV shows. But all the other downtime, especially music, I think has actually been the greatest victim. I still listen to music while I'm working. Um, I don't listen to music. Um, most other times, like even in, if I get up on a, a weekend morning and I'm making breakfast for my family, I will often have the iPhone on and the headphones in or like a Bluetooth speaker and be listening to podcasts, sort of depending on how foul mouth the podcasts are and if my kids are around. Um, so it's taken all of that time. What it hasn't done is um, impede my other media yet. Um, I mean, the making of podcasts impedes my consumption of other media because now I'm too busy making podcasts to wa- about TV shows to watch the TV shows, which is a problem. But um, it, what it, what it is doing is changing my my habits. Where um, I'm driving to work a lot more. I have a space in our building, so I can drive or take the bus. I can sort of choose, and I'm driving a lot more because I can listen to more podcasts. And it used to be like, oh, I got to take the bus because I'm reading this great book, and now it's like I got to drive because I got five podcasts queued up. And it is making me want to do – we'll see how this goes. But um, I'm actually using it as a lure now to do more exercise, saying I'm going to go for a walk or a jog or a run or get on the stationary bike. And my treat is I will get to listen to podcasts while I do that. But it hasn't crowded out the others 
you know, I've got uh, it's pretty antisocial. I've got two I've got two kids and a wife, and we all live in a very small house together. And I can't really just sit on the couch with my headphones in and say, "Don't bug me. I'm listening to a podcast." So uh, that's sort of where I draw the line. So, when did you first start to think that podcasting? on your own like you actually being on podcasts would be a good thing and were you guesting on shows before this wow that's a good question well i mean we did so the macworld podcast has been going forever and we would we kept doing that so that would that was kind of what i was doing with podcasting up to that point was being on that show and not not so much on other shows i think dan benjamin for a while um had a had a rotating like interview show that I was on a few times, and I remember going on like the day after the Lost finale, season finale, series finale, and talking to him and Derek Pawazek about Lost and the Smoke Monster and things like that. And I remember uh, I went on Leo Laporte's show a bunch because I used to go on his old TV shows at Tech TV, um, and then and then MacWorld. But it wasn't really the five when that five by five momentum really started is where is where I started you know showing up on other podcasts and. And uh, and it it kind of went from there. I keep coming back to that, but really in our in our market, in our industry, our little corner of the tech industry, the tech and Apple space, that five by five moment was like Dan really put that stuff together, and it all coalesced at that. It was like the perfect moment with these personalities who were great, interesting personalities, but didn't have an outlet for their personality, and Dan provided that. And that was that moment where I think everybody in the Apple community, well, not everybody, many people in the Apple community were like, oh. Wow, podcasting is a great thing. Look at all these great shows. Yeah. I can listen to John Syracuse while I'm mowing the lawn, which is what I did. Um, and and that was that that was like like I said that put the fuel in the engine again. That so, somehow that was the start, and people started doing it, and that's when it it really took off. But uh, before that, you know, we were still doing MacWorld every week um, or every other week, I think, for a while, forever, and doing the. Philip Michaels is like pundit showdown game show inside the Macworld podcast and and doing it on stage at Macworld Expo and, and and tinkering around with it then but it was kind of in obscurity until uh that sort of next generation in whatever 2009 sort of started to wake things up was uh the Macworld podcast the first show that you were regularly involved with yeah, I mean, it was either that or it was that TV podcast that we did right. six episodes oh, of, just as just as an experiment. But the MacWorld podcast, yeah, that was, and that was literally us saying, "This is interesting. Let's try it and see what happens." And it's had a whole bunch of different iterations. And you know, for ages, it was literally just sort of Chris Breen every other week doing a an, an interview or something. But it's had lots of different formats. And right now, it's Chris and uh, Serenity Caldwell uh, chatting about the the sort of Apple news of the week. Um, so it's had a whole bunch of different formats, including game shows and other stuff like that and interviews. And I did a bunch of those. And I must say, I do miss yeah. the game shows. I, I love Chris and Serenity, but I do miss the game shows. Well, they, they come back every, they did a pundit showdown at uh, WWDC. And I yeah. think, I think Phil is good for, for more of those. I keep telling Phil that he needs to, uh, he needs to create his own, own, uh, spinoff podcast where he can do tech, uh, punditry uh, game show on a maybe not every week but on a regular basis i think that would be a lot of fun i i keep trying to maybe macworld isn't the place to do it maybe it's a maybe it's a spin-off of the macworld podcast but it's a lot of fun it's it's actually i like a, i like trying other formats that's what we do clockwise the the tech i've uh podcast that dan warren and i do and that's that's just a tech podcast but it's got some format changes it's thir- it's 30 minutes and four topics and 
strict time, you know, time limit. And uh, it's fun to experiment. That, that's a great thing about this medium is e- even when you think, well, every every tech podcast is two guys talking about technology for an hour and there's follow up and right. You could say they're all the same, but that's not true. You can do you can do literally anything with this medium because it's young, like blogging was back in the day to tie that back around. It's uh you know, we are still all exploring this medium, and it hasn't shaken out. And it, it, it's not like television where people said, "Oh, uh, we've got it now. This is what it's going to be from now on." I don't feel like like we've done that. Or the web, when in the early days of the web, you could do all sorts of crazy stuff. And now the web is much more, you know, regimented than it was back then. Podcasting feels like that. You could, you know, the limitation is it needs to be audio. That's about it. I mean, a video podcast, I guess, but you know, that's a I, that feels like when Marco says that's a different medium. I agree with him. I feel like that's a different thing. So I want to talk about the incomparable, but before oh, I do this, uh, yeah, I, I was going to say this sounds like a natural time to tell us about, as Casey List would say, something cool. <laughs> so I will, and I'm going to talk to you about OmniGraph from the Omni Group today. That's going to be our first sponsor for this week's episode of Inquisitive. OmniGraphle is the app that can be used for anything. Diagrams, flowcharts, mind maps, wireframes, and even software mockups. You can take your ideas from imaginative sketches to a detailed final design with OmniGraphle. OmniGraphle is available for both Mac and iPad. And of course, it syncs your documents for free using the OmniSync server, so you can take your work with you no matter where you are. Let me give you some examples of some of the stuff that you can do with OmniGraphle so you can see just how versatile an app it is. So if you're interested in maybe user interface or user experience work, well, you can quickly and easily create sketchy drafts in a sort of a lo-fi environment very quickly whilst taking advantage of tons of stencils or frequently used UI elements so you can drag and drop them all in. You can easily and and very, very quickly create superb looking wireframes and web page layouts. And they will look fantastic because with all of the tools that OmniGraph will give built right in to help you do that. If you're interested in maybe some more old school page layouts, well, OmniGraph can help you with things like flyers for that birthday party you're planning, workbooks, manuals, the family newsletter over at Christmas, and so much more. Maybe you're into brainstorming. Well, you can quickly brainstorm on MindMap and the automatic layout tools will help you quickly get your ideas out without the need to mouse around all over the place. And you even get an outline sidebar to display your great ideas and you can even import outliner documents probably from Omni Outliner. Right? These guys know what they're doing. OmniGraphle can help you with basically any kind of diagram that you need. You can create precise, beautiful documents with all of the right tools and they give you a whole host of ways to share them. And some exciting news, OmniGraphle 2 for iPad should be launching alongside iOS 8. That's definitely one to keep an eye out for. If you want to find out more, go to omnigroup.com slash omnigraffle. That's O-M-N-I-G-R-A-F-F-L-E. Of course, all the links will be at relay.fm slash inquisitive slash 2. OmniGraffle for Mac is available from for the from directly, sorry, from the Omni Group store and also from the Mac App Store. OmniGraffle for iPad is available on the App Store. So that's OmniGraffle from the Omni Group. Diagramming is worth a thousand words. Every org chart that I have made in the last five years has been in OmniGraffle. That is an endorsement. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I will I will take it. File that away. <laughs> When did the incomparable begin? And I look at this word sometimes, and I I do struggle not to say the incomparable. Incomparable, sure. Is that a British thing, or is that just 
me. I I think that it's just an alternate pronunciation and people right. can use it. Um, it started well. I mean, the name comes from the fact that Greg Noss, my good friend, uh, who is like the he knows so many people and yet nobody knows who he is. Um, and I went to college with him. Uh, and he was a domain. He had a domain name problem. He was a domain name collector. He made a lot of uh, uh, funny, strange websites that used uh, automated scripts to scrape things and combine them in different ways. So he created a site called The American People that scanned uh, AP news feeds for use of the phrase of the American People, which was generally by politicians, and did a site that just like listed all the things the American people are supposedly wanting. Um, from according to politicians, and he he had a dream of doing a site called The Incomparable that was literally going to be like Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, where you could find somebody's incomparability score, you'd put in the name, and it would try to find how many references to that person as incomparable, the incomparable Alec Guinness that you, that you could find. And I believe Alec Guinness, <laughs> when he did his searches, was the winner. That he was the incomparable Alec Guinness. It was always the incomparable. He just thought that was really funny that people. This is a phrase people use. What does it mean? So um, I was uh, in in the summer of 2010. Again, story of my life. Uh, very busy. Have two kids. Uh, job. Very busy. Uh, decide I'll take on another project. But I always do this, right? It's like I want to have this creative um, side project. And there was a whole conversation on Twitter about science fiction novels. And it was it was a huge group of people. It was John Syracuse and Scott McNulty and Glenn Fleischman and just this huge. Um, huge conversation. Dan Morin was in there. And I said, you know, what we ought to do is do a podcast where, you know, this group could sit around and talk about this kind of stuff. And everybody was like, oh, that's a good idea. And in most cases, that would be where it would end. But no, Jason had to say, let's do it and put it together. And we recorded a couple uh, episodes before we even had a title. And I decided I wanted a title, but learning that lesson from teevee.org I wanted a .com. It had to be a .com. I was not going to – I didn't want to start a thing and not own the .com domain. I just didn't want to do it. I had a complex about it. And I said to Greg, you know, do you have any good names laying around? And we uh, – and uh, and one of the names he had laying around was The Incomparable. And uh, he had The Incomparable.com. And I thought, well, it doesn't mean anything. What I really wanted to name it was Zeppelin Enthusiast. Because we have this <laughs> obsession with with rigid airships on the show from from episode one, um, and the problem is that it just sounds like a Led Zeppelin fan club, so we couldn't do it. So uh, in, yeah, in, I, I tried. So it, it, it's a meaningless name for a. I just decided I didn't want to do something called geek something or nerd something or sci-fi something. I didn't want it to be defined like that. I wanted to, it to be broader, and um, you know which. You know, take that, Chris Hardwick, who's made an entire empire out of the nerdist. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to do that. And then, so instead I have this thing called The Incomparable now. But that that's really the story is I needed a name and it was a domain that was floating around. And so we used it. And uh, and I, I did the calculation is something like uh, 208 weeks later, which is four years, we released episode 208. So we're averaging an episode a week for four years, which is pretty good. That is incredible, by the way. I, I, I'm there with you. Like, I haven't done a single show, like, because I keep, I can't help myself, but just keep cutting them and starting again. But I've do, I've been doing it for that long, and and I know the sort of work that it takes to put that together, especially with the cast size <laughs> that you have. Although that helps, because I mean, one of the reasons that we have that giant panel to draw from is that. 
uh, it makes scheduling fairly easy. Um, people sort of raise their hand for the episodes they want to be in. And I, instead of having, if I had to plug in, like doing clockwise, we have two guests every week. And every week I have to go, all right, who who do I invite this time? And then you have to say, are you available? Can you make it? Oh, they can't make it. How about this? And with The Incomparable, it's never a problem. I Literally, I, I use doodle.com, thanks to Merlin Mann for suggesting that, which is a scheduling service. I put in all the times that I can make in the next week or two. Um, send it out to the list and say, here's the topic. If you're interested, sign up and we find a common time that most of the people can make it and we do it. So it, wrangling the panel is only a problem when 15 people want to talk about it because then I actually have to say, we can't have this many people. I'm going to have to ask you not to come. Please don't come because we have too many people. But um, generally, it's actually, it's actually, I mean, this is, and it comes up from time to time. I got an email from somebody who said, um, uh, we were talking about a book that had one of its issues was about perceptions of gender, and it was a book club episode, and it was all men talking about it. And they said, how could you do an episode about this book with all men? And the answer was, well, I had women volunteer. They RSVP'd, and then um, they had a personal issue come up within like an hour of the show starting. And the way that show works is we don't cancel them. We just go ahead and do them with whoever is there because I think there's a perception that it's much more of a, like a well-oiled machine than it really is. It really is literally like the people who show up are on the show and that's it. <laughs> and if nobody shows up, then uh, that's going to be a problem. But we've only like gone live and had to cancel once. And we've only ever had one show that only had two people on it. So generally it works. But it is totally random, and um, you know my attempts to upgrade the the diversity of the of the panel are by adding people to the pool, um, which I try to do carefully because a lot of us have known each other for a long time, and I I, I want somebody who is going to mesh with the with the the group's personality in in some ways, not necessarily in all ways, um, and then I add them to the pool. But in the end, they um, are going to come or not based on their own interests and timing and. Sometimes I will manipulate that a little and pick a less popular time that has a better cross-section of people. But um, but it's just, yeah, I mean, it's mostly just lazy schedule. Um, so that that's that's the secret is to have a pool of 15 people to draw from and you can always find four people to talk. So The Incomparable has had a, a few homes and, and originally it was a completely independent show. Right. So, Theincomparable.com, in fact, was its home. Indeed. <laughs> That's why we, why we had the domain, yeah. So it's moved back in now, and we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. Um, but I wanted to see, you'd started this show off, and, and you know you, you had quite an ambitious idea for the time with the amount of guests that you have. <laughs> yeah. How did you manage the technical aspects at first? Did you find the process of recording, editing, producing, and posting a challenge, and also managing the site? I was told not to do it by many people. Um, in fact, I was told Dan Benjamin, I, I remember, told me fairly early on, you should never have more than, I think, like three people on a podcast, something like that. Um, <laughs> and we had episodes with five and six and seven, mostly four and five. Technically, um, what's funny is that technically we we always tried to do the record your own end, the multi-ender thing. Um, so everybody would record their own end and send me their files, and then I would use the source audio from the local side, which is how most of these podcasts get done these days. Not all of them. Dan uh, Benjamin really likes to just use the Skype track, but he has he has a lot of shows and is, you know, it's a lot faster if you don't have to wait for somebody to send you a file. But these are I always said the incomparable is the artisanal handcrafted podcast. Mm-hmm. It's like I do a lot of editing to it. Um, 
on a level that I don't with something like Clockwise. I do a lot of editing to take out dropouts and, and false starts. And when you have eight people talking, there's a lot of over-talking and you want to pull it out so that everybody – it sounds like everybody's perfectly timed and they uh, and they always know when to jump in and nobody else is also ch- trying to jump in at the same time when in fact that's never the case. Um, so we started that in the beginning and you, you, you record the Skype track as a, a, an emergency fallback and we had plenty of failures over the years. Um, uh, but I've never lost an episode, but plenty of failures over the years. And I started using GarageBand and I found a idiosyncratic way to edit in GarageBand that worked pretty well for me, although, you know, it would take four hours or more to edit a one hour show. Um, and then over the years, I've refined that process and I use Logic now. Everybody's got better microphones. A lot of people started with like iPod or iPhone headphones or um, or uh, headset mics. And now everybody's got, you know, at least a Blue Snowball, if not a Yeti, if not a Rode Podcaster or some other dynamic mic. Everybody's upgraded there. Um, so it's, it's, it's evolved over time, but it was, always, it was always the intent to do that multi-person record thing, mostly because I didn't know any better. I mean, honestly, Mike, I, I don't think I would do the show the way, I, the way we started it if I had known better, but I didn't know better. I, didn't, I, didn't, I just thought I know this. The whole premise was I know this great group of people who wants to talk about this stuff, and they're enthusiastic about it, so we ought to talk about it. It was never, I'm going to create a show with three people, and I'll invite you on. It was more... Uh, more like a collective, more like chaos, like show up if you want to and we'll talk about it. And uh, that's why, like I said, I had people like Dan saying, you know, you can't do this. Um, One, because the editing is crazy. And two, because people aren't going to know who is that talking, which is a problem. It's totally a problem that if you've got six different voices, some people can pick out voices really well. And other people say Dan Morin and John Syracuse sound exactly the same. I can't tell them apart. And it... that's true to some people, but um, that's the show I wanted to do. And so I did it, even though I didn't quite realize what all the technical issues are. Although I will say, I don't agree with the idea that you can't have six people on a podcast. It's a lot harder. And if you're doing what Dan was doing and is still doing, which is uh, he's got a calendar full of shows and he has people calling in and they record the Skype call and they turn them around and post them immediately and it's like an assembly line. If you're doing that, you absolutely can't have six people on a podcast. But if you're t- doing once a week for an hour and then you sit there for several hours afterward and put it all together, you can do it and you get something that's just a different kind of show. And it's richer for having the different viewpoints and the interplay. And I think that's why people write in and say, I feel like I'm sitting around a table with a group of friends after we, you know, when we're going out to dinner after we just saw this movie. And I want to and I want to talk, and you guys aren't listening because you're very rude and on a podcast. Um, and that that is what the effect of that show is supposed to be: is you're supposed to hear a group of friends talking about things they're excited about, because that's what it is. So I think the way you you mentioned that Dan's way, and I I agree actually. You, you with the way that Dan Benjamin records, which is that he uses like Skype calls. Yeah, um, multiple you, Skype calls if necessary, but Skype calls over everything. multiple machines. Yeah, you you can't have a show really with even more than three people because it becomes a mess. So yeah. we, you know, we've connected. Uh, we record locally, but I don't do any of the the chopping up that they do on ATP. So there's we do kind of jump in over each other sometimes, um, but we've gotten better at that over time. But when if we were to have any more than that, and when we have four, we have to we have like a well-oiled machine. When we have a fourth person, where the three of us are in like a chat, and we're like, "I will talk now. 
I will talk now. <laughs> one more person in there and yeah. it becomes basically impossible to oh, have yeah. a discussion. So you have to do things the way that, that you do them, where you pull all the tracks in and you cut them up. And I've done that a few times. Like we've, I've had like specials, which have had five, six. I had 10 people once, which I will never do again, <laughs> ever. This is horrendous. Yep. Been there. Been there. Our year-end show was like, or our 200th show was like that. We had like 10 people and it was, it was so painful. And also you mentioned like the garage band. Um, yeah. I or as we say, garage, garage band. band. I was in the the same like sort of feeling as you. I had my way of editing in garage band and it took a lot of people a lot of convincing to get me out of it. Yeah. Cuz it was just that was the way I do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and it was probably not the way the tool was intended to be used. Um especially since Apple put that one version that had podcasting features and then they just ran ran away and never did anything more. And yet you could do it. And honestly, I switched to Logic and my my way of editing in Logic now is also um probably not how people would expect to to do it but it works for me because of my goal which is to have it be as fast as possible and because i'm editing a podcast with these panelists over talking that i have to i have to pick things out but it's you know and there's no one right way to do it but it's totally true i will say uh something that we don't do on the incomparable is have little notes to each other saying i will talk now that just never (laughs) happens it's just like uh, occasionally i will say go ahead so and so i know you were trying to say something knowing i'm just going to take that out but to get them to get everybody else to shut up but it almost never happens it's just like total chaos that that is because you give everybody the luxury of the edit right yeah it's on me to it's on me to draw those things out and i'll tell you it's actually sometimes it can be amazing when five people say things at once and then i i'm just like okay um let's move on to this next topic and i go back in the edit and i'll hear those five people said things and they like one of them was a false start and then they restated it later and then one of them was just a a kind of a nothing comment that didn't go anywhere. But then there'll be in there, there'll be two or three that are like really great and sometimes hilariously funny. And that's the beauty of, I'm putting in the work, but I let those things shine. And so I can pull those all apart. And it sounds like we are an incredibly well-oiled, smart, funny machine when in fact it was five people talking at once. And that those those are great moments because they make the editing worthwhile when that does happen. So over time, it seems like you've, You've kind of gotten a process. You've improved some of the things that you do. Um, you kind of have come back to the point where you're managing the whole stack. Um, with your current responsibilities of managing the incomparable, just that show, what of those current responsibilities would you like to pass off or do you enjoy them all too much? I, so um, so when I started the incomparable, I really wanted – I mean when you're the editor-in-chief and, and then I became editorial director – um, you are so removed from the day-to-day of sort of like why you got into the business. That, and that's why I've always had this side project of something creative where I like I, I get to control the whole product. Um, and so editing was the thing. Like I loved – as much as it was a pain, I also loved the audio editing because it, it sounded – this is why Marco does ATP. Um, and he will not use a freelancer to edit some episodes. Like when he launched Overcast, he didn't – he edited the episode that week. He had a thousand support emails. He edited the episode that week. I sent him an email saying, you know, I know somebody. And he said, nope, nope, I'm going to do it myself. And I was like that too for a very long time because it was like that's what making the show was, was as much 
going through and trimming out the things that you thought were extraneous and and giving space for your people to shine and, and, and just having the pride of craftsmanship of like, I made this, this is my thing. And coming from... I was always doing digital publishing, but but coming from a magazine background as well, um, the idea of dropping a, a, a thing once a week and saying, this is the thing I made, instead of that endless stream of stories that you do when you're posting on the web, I love that too. So all of that is stuff that I took pride in um, when I started. These days, since I've got a bunch of other things, because The Incomparable has spinoff shows and I'm, I'm, I'm doing... Um, like we've got our D and D show, Total Party Kill, and and um, we're doing these flashcasts on the on the TV, revived TV podcast where we're talking about we talked about Game of Thrones when it was on. Now we're talking about Doctor Who. Every right right after the broadcast, we talk for half an hour about it. Um, now that I'm doing more of those projects, I actually have um, used a freelancer to edit some of um, some of the episodes for me. Uh, they're generally the ones that I think went pretty well and that I don't have any major content notes about. And it just needs to be take out the crosstalk, um, you know, uh, remove the false starts, stuff like that. And I've been using Jim Metzendorf for that. And he's been editing sort of every other episode for about six months now. Um, and that's and I'm OK with that because I have enough creative outlet left. I, I, I'm keeping the episodes where I feel like they're I, I really need to exert my editorial authority over the content. And. Um, I am also doing all of the Total Party Kill episodes, which are a lighter edit, but it's still an edit. So I've got enough there where I don't need even more, and I, I, I've passed some of that off. So, um, you know, we we run ads now. I am not interested in ad sales, so I'm happy to have other people do that. And and uh, Dan Benjamin is doing those, and uh, Moises Chuyan is doing some of those too. And I used to have Lex do them, uh, Lex Friedman, because so, I don't want to be an ad sales guy. I just – I don't. Um and the hosting, I've had some guest hosts, but honestly, that's the thing that I kind of want to keep. Um, I'm happy. Um, I'm happy if there's an episode about something I'm interested in, and I want to host it. I, I have talked about things that I'm not interested in, or I just can't do the work. It's like read this entire ten book series, and then we'll do an episode about it. It's like I can't. It's unlikely that I'm going to do that. But if I've got one of my regular panelists who loves it and wants to host an episode about it, I've done a few of those, and I would do those again. Um, but the, the the funny one is giving up the editing because that was the shining thing of like this is my control and it still gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. But I've got so many other things to edit that some of them I can say you know I can give that up and it would be easier for me to pay Jim a little bit of money to do that episode um, than and let me focus on this other thing where I feel like I'm going to be able to contribute more and this this one needs me and this one doesn't need me. I can sympathize with the editing thing like. So we don't. That's do... where the show is made, right? I mean, yeah. that, that in some in some cases, unless it's truly live to tape, some cases that is the like I am crafting the final product right here. Like the majority of my shows are live to tape. Um, I don't really do content edit very often on Connected, but I throw little audio bits in here and there that that, that I recognize and note while we're recording. Sure, um, I love that with the uh, with your. Uh, your iPod launches episode. Thank you. That, that, that you dropped those in there. Reminded me sometimes with our Star Wars episodes, I'll do the same thing. And it's a lot, it's extra work, but it can it can be really fun to have those little clips in there. I don't like to do them too much because you can right. can kind of kill it. But when, when we do it, I just, I, I love it. And 
Casey Liss has a very specific way that he likes his shows to sound. So analog is quite heavily edited. Um, hmm. He like he likes me to cut out clicks and pops and etc. Are you saying Casey is is Casey a diva? Is yes, that what we're saying here. Casey, Casey is, is a diva. Casey is a complete diva. All right, um, but I'm happy to do Good it to know. because uh, he's used to a certain uh, style, and he gives me like four days to do it. Well, he doesn't give me four days. I agreed four days with Casey uh, as, as our edit time. <laughs> but even in the shows like this one, where I will take my local recording and your local recording, put them together and, and, and sort of put them out to the world, I could have someone do that, but I still want to do it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm part of five podcasts at the moment, which I pr- host, produce, edit, and post. And that to me is, as you say, it's a massive part of it. There is just this mm-hmm. this element of the creation that is embedded in the whole process. Well, it's it's um, to take it to writing. It's it's very similar. Where if you're writing, um, if you're writing a, a, a news story or or a, or a review or something, writing is part of the process. It is the part that starts the whole thing going. But it doesn't determine the final product. The final product is the button press that makes the thing appear to the world. And if you run your own site, that's you. And if you're working as a freelancer, it goes through an editor and the editor is going to make it conform to whatever the house style is or whatever. And they're going to decide the headline and the art that goes with it. And that's and they push the button and that's the final button press. If you're a, if you're a novelist, chances are there's somebody at the at the publishing company who's going to decide the font and the headers and the jacket copy and pick the right photo for the jacket photo and how it's how the PR is and and you know they're determining how that book gets laid out and all of those things. The final product, you are the primary author of that book, but you know, you you didn't make that product by hand. There were you know, there was some person at the publisher who took it through to completion and and so we often talk about like who is the author of 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 a of a thing um but there are different aspects of the the there's like the raw material creation and then there's that like final step and that final step and i i say that i I realize as somebody who's not just a writer but an editor that final step is incredibly satisfying to let something go out in the world i mean it is i realize this about myself in doing the incomparable that i had missed it uh, from doing you know other online magazines and and working on Macworld and Mac user magazines that there is something so powerful of saying I have determined that this thing is at the point where it's going to be released to the world boom now it's released and I'm going to tell everybody about it come and get it it's done here it is and that um you know and and for podcasts editing is really that yep I yeah. I 100 agree like it's it's the part where you roll your sleeves up. Yeah. Yeah, and I listen to the ones that that I have I've delegated and, you know, and they're perfectly fine and nobody's going to notice a difference and I sit there when I listen to them I'm like, "Oh man, I would have done this differently. I would have changed this." I would, and I have to just be like, "No, no, 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 no. Not this is the whole point is I decided to delegate that one." And as an editor it was like this, as a as a manager of editors that um it's okay. At a certain point, you do need to delegate and and trust other people's judgments um, for some things. If you want to do, if you your scope, you want your scope to be bigger. But it is a difficult moment to say, "I'm going to give away some of the creative control on this thing that I've made," even if it's your establishment and you were the host and recorded the whole episode. Um, and you know, everything up to that point is you. If you give it to an editor, they've kind of got final cut, <laughs> and you are not the author of it in some way which is just, it's weird. And 
uh, you got to be a little less control freaky about it at times if you if you want to give it up. It's just like, all right, um, I'm going to let it go. Uh, although, are you still a control freak if you give it up and then freak out about it when it comes back? Yeah, <laughs> I, I may, maybe. I think I think I think you haven't solved anything. I think right. you're just moving the freak to somewhere else. That's all you're doing. Right, right. But that there is that quality of like when you're the person who pushes the button, who makes the final decisions that gets the thing out the door. That is different from being the person who started the project and did the bulk of the creation work. And and when you do both, that is the best. Uh, you can't always do both. So let's take another break um, to thank our friends over at Igloo for sponsoring this week's episode of Inquisitive. Igloo is an intranet that you'll actually like. Igloo is built with you in mind. They have super easy-to-use apps like shared calendars, Twitter-like microblogs, file sharing, and so much more. All of these apps are integrated into Igloo's platform and are really simple to set up and configure just how you like. Everything that you're going to need with Igloo is built right in and everything is social. This means that when you upload a file to your Igloo or you write a blog post, your team can share it with each other, comment on it, rate it, and like it. This is just like all the social apps that you're used to using every day. It's bringing something a little bit more fun and refreshing and something that you're used to into the day-to-day stuff within your corporate or just small company intranet. With Igloo's latest release, you can also manage the tasks that are associated with your content. So let's say like updating the images for that big keynote that you have on Tuesday or delegating the actions after a meeting. Tasks, is what Igloo calls it, uh, is the latest app to be integrated into their internet platform and it was released just last week to all Igloo customers with their unicorn release. Igloo's task management is designed for people, so you can manage your projects, personal to-dos and everything in between. And this allows you to see all of the tasks that you have with one unified view inside of your intranet. Igloo have really built something that will keep help keep you on top of your work. When I got to take a look at uh, Igloo's stuff a couple of weeks ago and then they took took me through a whole run through of their product they showed me the tasks functionality and it was really cool so like you set up a word document assign this to this person can you make sure that bob has done this and can you make sure that mary has done this and that jane has made sure that steve sees it that kind of thing and you could add all the tasks to the content it was a really interesting way of, of managing this type of stuff If your company has a legacy intranet built on SharePoint or old portal technology, you really should be giving Igloo a try. Or if you just want to be more connected, more social, more productive in your workplace, Igloo is for you. Igloo is free to use of up to 10 people, and you can sign up today at igloosoftware.com slash inquisitive. Thank you so much to Igloo for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. Show your support to them and us by going to that URL, which is igloosoftware.com slash inquisitive. And the links to all of that are in today's show notes. Thank you, Igloo. So, Jason, the incomparable network. Yes. When did you decide that you wanted to start <laughs> building a whole new home again? <laughs> and, and why didn't you just take the the spin-offs that seem to be appearing, like Total Party Kill and TV, and just make them episodes of the incomparable? Uh, that's a question I ask myself a lot. So <laughs> the the website started, and it's funny because I think all podcasters obsess about their websites way more than they should because it turns out all of my experience indicates that um, if you want to communicate, we did a contest and we and we picked a winner at random, and we communicated through Twitter and Facebook and Google Plus, and we communicated on our website and in and in show notes. 
and got no response from the content winner, contest winner. And it was somebody's iTunes I, uh, name, and, and we couldn't find this. who they were, right? Yeah. And then finally, I put at the beginning of an episode, I said, hey, if you're this guy, let me know. And immediately, I got an email. And what that taught me was, your listeners are not on your website. They, are, they may not even be looking at your show notes. They are listening to the podcast. The podcast is where you communicate with them. Nowhere else. And... Um, and this just happened again when we did the Doctor Who uh, flashcast last weekend that um, I had a bunch of people say, where is it? And we'd been very clear in all communication channels, except I forgot to mention it on the podcast that week that we were doing it. And people don't – that's podcast listeners listen to podcasts. That's what they do. So um, despite all that, I got obsessed with the idea because The Incomparable covers so many different works that I wanted an index. And I, ta- I, I uh, we used to have like tags and we could mark whether it was a book episode or a movie episode or a TV episode. And I wanted to be able to build an index where you could say, oh, what's the episode where you talked about 12 monkeys? And you could go to the website and click on 12 monkeys and do it. So we had talked for ages about doing that. And that was working – that was going on. And that was, that was always the plan. It was always a plan to have the incomparable.com come back up alongside the podcast on 5 by 5 Um. The idea of the spinoffs, it's a couple of things. One was I felt like we were doing um, stuff that was out – it felt to me like it was outside of the charter of the the show. That that we had after 100 episodes or 150 episodes really said, look, every week you're going to get an episode. The episode is going to be this group of people that you know more or less in different forms here and there, but it's going to be this same group of people uh, with the occasional guest, and they're going to talk about a work, and it's going to be maybe it's a movie or a TV show or a game or a comic, and not everybody likes comics and not everybody plays video games, but it's going to be, you know, but that's that's my decision. It's like we're going to talk about comics, and if you don't like it, then too bad. You're going to miss that episode. That's fine. Podcast listening is optional. Just skip that episode. But I felt like when we played Dungeons and Dragons the first time, it was just a fun experiment. And then we liked it and wanted to do it some more. And and we podcasted. And I started to think, this feels like it's not part of what the show is supposed to be. This feels like an extension. And I, I felt like I was okay saying, look, if you don't play video games, just don't listen to those episodes. I kind of didn't feel like saying, okay – um, if you don't like to listen to us idiots playing Dungeons and Dragons for three hours, just don't listen to that episode because I felt like that was more of an intrusion. The other part of it, and this this is the truth, is we started taking advertising because I wanted to see if the advertising thing would work. I resisted it for a long time, but it's like you know what? Um, if I this this will tell me something about my future as a as a podcaster. Could I could I quit my job someday and do podcasting full time? Which I think is crazy but you know i wanted to find out what would what would happen if i took advertising on the incomparable um and that's gone pretty well but what goes with that is this idea that the advertisers want to know how many downloads your episode had the um longer your episode is the most recent episode the more times it gets downloaded they don't really like it or at least i didn't like the idea that i was selling somebody a podcast sponsorship and then that episode was only the new episode for three days or five days and then it would get eclipsed by by like a special episode if i if i dropped the D episode in between we did one of the D episodes it got to the point where we had recorded a session and i didn't post that D episode for like a month and a half until we had a week where we had no sponsors and then i just dropped it in that week um because i i felt like the sponsors were really buying the show for the week yep not not the show for a few days and then replaced by some other episode that that half the people weren't going to listen to. 
So it was both of those things. And I think they're related. Like, like this is not what the show is supposed to be. The show is supposed to be a weekly and instead it's a every a weekly plus an extra thing that is not close enough. So that was the motivation to do Total Party Kill as a separate thing because people – we like doing it and we had a fun time playing D&D together. I never played D&D before and we, we, we played this game and are playing another one now. And people said they liked it, which is great. It's I a, love a, it. And I've never su- even played the game. <laughs> a bit surprising, but I've had people say, I, I would love to know why you why you like it. I, I mean, I, I think we talked about this before a little bit, but it's like there is a storytelling aspect and there's a character aspect and there's a kind of a comedy, funny people saying funny things while they're doing this thing. And you don't know what's going to happen because nobody knows except the dungeon master. But it didn't feel like the incomparable. So I, I, I finally said, look, I'm, I don't want to sweat over this thing. I just want to put it out there. So let's just do it on its own. And since we were building the incomparable website anyway, it seemed the simplest thing to do was just to put it there. And I could have talked to Dan about putting it on 5x5, five five, but I, I felt like I wanted to control more of the experience. I felt like I wanted to to build this thing myself. And I, I honestly, I didn't want to parachute in with a Dungeons & Dragons podcast on 5x5 five five because it felt like – it, it honestly, I feel like The Incomparable is kind of a bad fit for 5x5, five five, but it's okay. But this felt like even worse of a fit, and it was, it was you know, a subset of The Incomparable. And so I felt like it, it – I wanted to control that – uh, that site and control that message and let it be an experiment on its own and not use Dan's bandwidth and not use Dan's infrastructure. And so, you know, so it was a bunch of things that, that led to that. And then we've done other other spinoffs since then. Random Trek was the, the, the same way Scott had been talking about that for a while. And I actually, you know, his thing was the editing was a hang up. And so I, I we actually used money from incomparable sponsorships to pay Jim Metzendorf to edit Random Trek for us. And the reason Random Trek exists is because The Incomparable exists and has some ads. And it, it allowed this other podcast to come into being, which is great. That's perfect. That's, that's exactly uh, what we wanted to have happen. The Incomparable is like a sugar daddy. A little bit. I mean, I, I'm hoping that at some point the Random Trek and especially can – uh, have a, a big enough audience that it can pay, at least pay for its own editing. That would be great. <laughs> um, but if it doesn't, then that's fine. I mean, I love that that show is in the world, and 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 it's a uh, it's a lot of fun to do it. And you know, it's a the incomparable as a network is really again, it's a shows of a, of a kind. Um, they're all pop culture shows, geeky pop culture shows with people that you will recognize from the incomparable. It's people you know, or at least they're all part of the same sort of circle of friends. And that's that's what it was meant to be. So it started with me wanting an index of works and then led to this like feeling of what might, what is too much. TV, the flashcast that we're doing, it's the same thing. It's like not everybody wants to listen to us talk about Doctor Who every week or Game of Thrones every week. And so to throw another episode in the feed, which we did for Doctor Who a couple years ago, and I some people loved it and some people were like, I don't listen to those. Why are these even here? And they were not like the show. It was like a different show with mm-hmm. the same people. And so... I, you know, I decided, well, this gives us freedom. We can do in the off. First off, it gives us freedom that if Lisa Schmeiser wants to do a recap of Sons of Anarchy every week, she can do it. And it's fine. Um, She just anybody who wants to use that feed can use it in in, of the panelists. They can they could do that. And it also gives us the freedom to talk about TV in a way that maybe we wouldn't do before, where maybe we go back when when we're off of doing one of these shows and we watch Firefly episode by episode or something like that or take something season by season where we probably wouldn't do that in the incomparable proper. It doesn't sound quite the same. 
So, yeah. So that was the – I don't know if that's logical because the fact is the most listeners are on the main show. And the more stuff I stuffed into the main show it would mean the more listeners for those things. It just didn't seem right. And there is a master feed, like all good podcast networks like mm-hmm. Relay. There's a master feed. So if you love everything, just subscribe to everything. But it didn't feel right for the main show. So this has taken me way too long to get here. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> let's... No, I just didn't stop talking. That's what happened. No, I'm, I'm happy. As long as you're happy, I'm happy. So let, oh, yeah. let's uh, just switch gears a little bit and talk about, right. talk about blogging, this newfangled thing. All right. So... When blogging started to become a thing, like it was becoming a thing that people were doing, not just to express like their emotions. Um, what was your focus at IDG at that time? Where were you placed? Were you an editor at MacWorld? I'm I'm sure I was an editor at MacWorld at that at that time. I I, I don't know. I mean, because we were doing TV T E V E E dot org, um, and that was a blog before that they had a word for it. I mean that was yeah. that was a bunch that was a group blog. Um we didn't even have a CMS at first. So and, and then on on uh, the editorial side I mean that was always the debate is are we doing a magazine's website? Are we doing a blog? What is it? But um you know, I was definitely I mean because I've been in, in at Macworld 90G for so long then certainly that that all that whole revolution happened while we were doing like a magazine and a website. So that was you would assume naturally that you were working on the magazine. Yeah, I'm, I'm. Well, my job, my job, ping pong between magazine and online. Uh, you know, it, the the website. I was the first online editor when I started um, at Mac User. Uh, then I was the features editor at Mac World, and then I was the online, you know, online editor, which meant I was basically in charge of all of the web editorial stuff. And then late, and then I was the editor of everything, and then I was the editor in chief. So I did ping pong back and forth, but because um, we always had both. Um, both web presence and magazine presence, but magazine was always part of it too. Um, and then, and and this actually goes back to what I was saying about podcasts when I I drew this parallel for you earlier, which is uh, one of the reasons my side project back then was a blog was because I was really intrigued with the opportunities and possibilities of that medium, and my company was not going to move as fast. And necessarily as open to experimentation with that medium. Um, And so I coupled that with my love of pop culture to do what I've done again and again, which is experiment with new technologies and and mediums by writing about – writing content about pop culture instead of technology on the side. And that was what TV was because, you know, Macworld's online presence was more difficult because it needed to be professional and there were strategy issues. Do you give away content that you're charging for in print? All of those things were happening um, at, at, at the publishing company while this was going on. Can you remember anything that, that indicated to you that blogging was becoming a real thing? Like that people were able to, to make it a business, like to be a John well, Gruber. Yeah, well, I, I was going to use Gruber as the example. So so John Gruber, you know, he worked at Bare Bones. He did documentation and stuff for them. And he started his he started his site. I mean, I, I knew him. I really didn't know him before he started doing Daring Fireball in the very, very early days before he was well known at all. He did this blog. And um, one of the things that I've tried to I've tried to do throughout my entire career is be one of those people who takes everybody on face value, does not say, well, what are their credentials? And so, you know, Gruber wrote great stuff on Daring Fireball, and I didn't 
I didn't go, who does this guy think he is? Or where did this guy come from? I want to know what his credentials are. I was like, this is great stuff. And, and um, we used him as a freelancer for a bunch of articles. Uh, like he did a bunch of how-to articles, uh, a bunch of BB Edit-related stuff, which made sense because he knew that app incredibly well, having, having worked for them. Um, and I remember at one point um, John saying that he made more on, on that Macworld article he wrote for me than on Daring Fireball that year. Um, <laughs> which those were the early days, right? <laughs> yeah. I, so I think, but it was not long after that where where that flipped around, and suddenly he was he was John Gruber, and he was doing this for uh for his living, and that you know he had the he had the sponsors, and then he had the podcast, and then he started to get invited to the Apple events, and the fact is, all deserved, completely deserved. He was like I said, he was great before anybody was paying attention to that site. His articles that he wrote for us were fantastic. He was he didn't need to be John Gruber because he was John Gruber. He 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 had all of the he wasn't the, the the brand name. He was the guy with all the talent. And the reason that he became successful at it is yeah, timing is always there, luck is always there. But the fact is, um, it, it, to quote John Syracuse, the the uh, necessary but not sufficient. Uh, you got to be talented, and it may not work, but you got to be talented. And Gruber was at a at a good time. Um, was on his own instead of being in a kind of a cushy magazine job like some of us, right? And it, just incredibly talented and and wrote those great articles. And fortunately, the world noticed and he became successful at it. And the world changed at that time, right? It, you know, when I started the, in this business, you know, my whole goal was to get a job in publishing because I wanted to do writing and editing for a living. And there was no other option. And John was out on his own and doing his thing and doing a great job at it. And he did. He totally didn't need that. He totally didn't need a a, a scaffolding around him at all um, because he was so talented and because the time was right. They, that I really do believe we got to that point where between like sponsorship and adver, you know advertising platforms and things like that and and people just sending links around as currency um, was enough. For um, somebody to make a living and 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 build a business of 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 content and knowledge, and uh, so that I mean John is my example. That's he's the guy who who I, I said you know he's he's not John Gruber of something other than Daring Fireball, which is John Gruber. He is he is him of himself, and that's fantastic. Uh, and now we see that a lot of other people are able to do things like that, that, um, you know, Jim Dalrymple, who used to work uh, with me here at Macworld and before that at Mac Central, um, you know, Jim, when he left here, he didn't go work at CNET or something. I think he did do some freelance writing for CNET, but he started his own site and it took him a while to figure out what he was doing there. But he started his own site and he's got his podcast and he's making it work. And uh, that's possible now. It's not guaranteed that everybody's going to succeed at that, but um, it's possible now. And and John was the – he was that first example of like, you know, he doesn't need we, – we republished a bunch of his stuff in Macworld, which was great because there was an audience who didn't know who he was because they didn't read websites. Um, and at some point in the last few years, that has become unnecessary <laughs> on top of everything else. <laughs> so is it possible to be able to pinpoint a certain thing – 
and say this is how blogging has changed tech journalism? Oh uh, well, I'd say um, I'd say it's it's brought on. Uh, it's a much more competitive environment. It's brought more variety. It's it's lowered the barrier to entry for anybody. Like Mark Gurman is a good example now, where he's got great sources and does great reporting at Nine to Five Mac, um, and he came out of nowhere. And he's he's basically just a kid, but he's great and has great sources and does a good job. And that's all that matters. And I think I think um, obviously there's always going to be bad stuff and there's going to be good stuff. But what in my mind, what's great about this across all fields, and certainly I've seen it directly in tech journalism, is you um, – because there's no gatekeeper, because you don't have to apply for a job at a big publishing company and finally get hired and then go through the ranks and, and, and all of that. Because you can – if you're good, you can just do what you're good at and be successful at it. Um, is uh, that's really that's really exciting. So I think that's the big change is people go out on their own. Um, the competition is great, and that that makes all of the um, that exposes all the slow players that the ones that that don't really haven't embraced it and don't know what they're doing um, because it's unforgiving. You can be here's an example. You can be a guy, a young, relatively young, like a baby almost guy in Italy, out in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> and say, "I am going to do a website about Apple." And become, um, you know, well known and respected in that community in a very short amount of time, simply because you do good work. And Federico Vitici does good work, um, and that's it. And that's all he needs to be. He doesn't need to be in America. He doesn't need to have a banner of some, you know, the imprint of some publishing company or twenty-year-old brand behind his name. He doesn't need it. He's got the Vitici seal of quality, and that's all that is required. And that's <laughs> that is the difference. That and that's what's great about where we are now is um, you know the CNETs and Verges of the world can compete, and they have the scale of technology and budgets that they can throw at things that the little guys can't. But that the little guys are also able to compete and fill you know and 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 serve the needs of of different audiences too. So there's. Um, I, I love it. I, I, but then again, I was never one of those guys who said, who does he think he is? I was, I was the one who was like, John Gruber is great. He should write articles for us. Uh, and not, oh, he's just a blogger. Cause that, that always bugged the crap out of me. Um, because that's not a, you know, being, being paid, being hired at a, at a big publishing organization or having a title or something is not a, is not evidence <laughs> that you are talented the work is evidence that you're talented and and with the web you can get that evidence without having to find you know spend 10 years working your way up till the point where you get a megaphone so i i want to relate this now to podcasting and how that you just blew my mind <laughs> is believe it or not <laughs> i'm taking we're, we're bringing this right back around again but before i want to do that i want to thank uh all our sponsor for this week's episode and you could say I I planned this sponsor right now, and you would be correct. Today, I would like to thank and talk about a new sponsor for Relay FM, and that is a little Mac app called Blogo. Blogo Two is a fantastic new application for the Macintosh that quickly and easily lets you write, preview, and publish blog posts to your WordPress blog. Blogo makes it possible to write in a clean and simple interface edit pictures that you want to put in with its fantastic built-in image editor and preview your posts in real time, showing you exactly how your post will look on your site before hitting publish. 
The built-in image editor I just mentioned allows you to crop, apply filters, adjust brightness and contrast, and change the sizes of your images. This is all built in to Blogger, making and making, adding and editing images to your post a piece of cake. Blogger allows you to manage comments, manage multiple blogs, and work without an internet connection using their offline mode, which allows you to work on your next big piece and schedule it to go live when you have an internet connection later on. When you're writing away in Blogo, you can enter their distraction-free full-screen mode. This gives you a fantastic environment to get focused in and get your work done. They also feature a really cool integration with Evernote, so you can be collecting your ideas in Evernote on another device or in a web browser or something somewhere else. And Blogo's Smart Sync feature will make sure that when you sit down to publish your works in Blogo, all the work that you've been doing in Evernote is ready for you to polish up and publish right there. So they, they, they find a way to sort of integrate into the great Evernote ecosystem. The Blogo team is super responsive to support. They have uh, their site support.getblogo.com and also at GetBlogo on Twitter. And they wanted me to let you know about some stuff that they're working on in future updates, like custom field support, multi-markdown support, Blogger and Tumblr integration, and so much more. Blogo has been featured on the Mac App Store and has been nominated as one of Evernote's best new startups at 2014. So go and see what all the fuss is about by going to getblogo.com, that's G-E-T-B-L-O-G-O.com. Go there right now or search for them in the Mac App Store. Thank you so much to Blogo for their support of Relay FM. So Jason. Mike. If you look at podcasting now, do you see any of the signs that were present when blogging started to get the it's John Gruber moment. Oh yeah, I mean uh, we we've already seen that that there are people that I think are are recognized as um podcasting uh, personalities that uh here's what's different about it. What's different about it is that voices work on our brain in a way that words don't. And all the years of me writing stories in Macworld didn't matter as much as when I started having my picture in there because that works different on the brain and that that connection didn't match the connection that I've gotten with people since they've started hearing my voice every week on the incomparable because our brains just are so tied into ideas of community and all of that, that that voices are voices are powerful. And this is, that's one of the reasons I love this medium is and why I think it's so powerful. And so you can look around and, and there are people rising up even now. I mean, first off, there are in the main mainstream, if there can be a podcasting there, you know, there are people who like Mark Maron is way more famous now than he ever was before because of his podcast. But in, even in the Apple and, and Mac space, right? I mean, there are people who maybe didn't know about Federico before the prompt. Um, there are the profile, uh, your profile. Uh, as a podcaster, ha- was was raised when you started doing more shows at Five by Five. Stephen Hackett's profile raised by being on the prompt. Um, Casey Liss, who the hell is Casey Liss? Right, <laughs> he has two podcasts now, um, and and it, it it has that power to power to make uh, people much more well known and make audiences that are connected to them to coin a phrase to use a word connected. With nice. with with you because um, they like hearing your voice and like, like what you have to say and they, they start to feel like you're you're a friend you're a part of their community and um, so you see that you see that all around I mean John Syracuse while legendary in some circles for writing those OS ten reviews um, that that I would I would argue is not the same guy 
in a lot of people's minds as the hypercritical guy. Like the hypercritical made such a huge difference. Merlin Mann, the same way. Back to work, um, Merlin, his stature was one thing and now it's also this other thing. Um, Marco, the same way. Marco Arment was a uh, a known personality for other things, but Build and Analyze and ATP have have given him a level, I think, of of uh, recognizability that that wasn't there before. So I think it's happening all around us that there are people who can enter um, the you know, for example, the Apple and related tech media uh, publishing world with their voice and not anything else or or that their voice is the thing that gets them the recognition and not and not necessarily the things that they write um or the products they make and that's fascinating to me um uh, but that reminds me of blogging that that um there's no there's no check for your credentials that really in the end people are listening to your voice and do they do they like it do they not do they like what you have to say do they want to come back next week and hear more and uh i, I that's why I love this medium is that I, I listen to lots of podcasts. And for me, the answer is yes, I want to hear more. I want to hear these people. I, I really uh, I really love these people in my ears every day. So it's seeming like that, you know, and we spoke about it a bit earlier about how there was this dip and now it seems to be taken off again. It seems like there is, it's maybe taken a bit longer for podcasting to start to become a thing in, the, in this like corner of the internet that we occupy know uh you know blogging took a long time uh, depending on how you time it i mean it, it it took a long time to become perfectly you know respectable ish and you could even ar- argue that it, it's still not totally respectable but it's more functional than it used to be um there were i mean the, the web was out there for a whole long time i i built my first web page in like 1993 or something i mean the web was out there a long time before it got to the point where blogging was um was more respectable and mainstream or that you could maybe make a living at it. And podcasting shares some of the same issues that, you know, with blogging, there were a lot of technical issues. People didn't have computers that were on the internet or their internet wasn't fast enough or the web browsers were really bad or it was really hard to build a website and there weren't CMSs and all of these things that were impediments to people. And then, and then you build a site and how does anybody know about it? Uh, because there wasn't social media at that point. So you had to read an article from somebody who had known somebody who knew something about this site. And then that's how it would come into into being. And podcasts have their own technical limitations. I think, I think discoverability, I think there are lots of people out there who just don't know the podcasts exist. Uh, and then if they do find out, they're not quite sure what to listen to beyond the like three that everybody listens to. I think they're not in cars. Um, there's no easy way for somebody who's in a car to say, I want to listen to a podcast now. Hopefully, with some of the new car integration from Apple and from Google, that will become uh, that will become better. I really believe that if more people knew what the heck podcasts were and it was easier to get them, they would um, they would listen, and and that it would be really spectacularly bad for the radio. But uh, it hasn't happened yet. I think it's going to probably. I think that there are companies out there who could help it along, and I hope, like you know, including Apple and Google, and I hope they do a better job of it because right now it's a lot of independent people saying, "Look at us, look at us, you know, we're making this stuff," and the big guys are, are including the tools, including the apps, and the big guys are like, "Yeah, it's fine, I guess," and uh, I think it could be a lot more. But um, given that the number one place people listen to podcasts is in their car, I believe. 
uh, and I just totally made that up. But everybody I've mm-hmm. talked to, that sounds like it's the number one audience is the captive commuter audience. That um, the better and easier it is to integrate that into your car, even if it's just like CarPlay or something like that or um, Android Auto, then uh, that's going to be great for podcasting because I think it's better than radio because you're choosing, you know, you're choosing everything. You're programming it yourself and, you know. The people listening to this presumably think that too because they're listening to a podcast, a long podcast that is near the end. What about the making money part of it? Do you think that's there's, there's parallels with podcasting as there were to blogging? Yeah, I mean, that that is, I think, the big thing that happened when that, that uh, second explosion of podcasts happened is that um, – they suddenly became somewhat viable from a uh, from a, an advertising perspective that you know and and we laugh about it but like squarespace saying we're going to we're going to do branding I, this is one of the ways where i think podcasting is so much better than the web because the web has been reduced to um to cost per click advertising and what was great about um tv and uh, magazine advertising in the heyday of those media was that it was that branding advertising was the key, and some would argue that maybe branding advertising is the most powerful advertising of all because that's the advertising that says Coke is a real product and you should like it, or you know um, that Vizio is a real television and not some random brand you've never heard of, and we're legitimate. And when you see our TVs at Costco next it's okay to buy them. And so they did Vizio did TV ads and in all the football games because they knew there was a huge market of sports watching people who wanted to buy HD TVs and they, they established themselves as a brand. Well on the web, like everything is cost per click and branding advertising isn't about cost per click. It's about getting your brand and your message in front of people so that at a later time they think you're legitimate. One of the great things about podcast advertising is it's more like that old fashioned advertising. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, in a really positive way where the messages are personal. It's not put together by some algorithm from Google where the price has crashed to the lowest amount possible through to a, through a complicated like arbitrage relationship based on ad networks. Um, it, it's a it's about uh, connecting a loyal audience with interesting products, um, and branding is a part of it. Squarespace really established this in some ways as a medium uh, for advertising by doing their broad branding. And the fact is, nobody knew who Squarespace was, and now everybody knows who Squarespace was or is. They're still around, right? Yes, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. Come on, Squarespace, right? Get it together, Squarespace. We love you. But um, that worked. That worked, and they continue to advertise. And I think, I think that that has been great for their business. I know nothing about their internal numbers or anything, but it's like visibility of Squarespace, as far as I can tell, among the people who listen to podcasts, is vast. And that's the power of this kind of advertising. And the web has completely turned its back on it. The web is just not ever going to be, I think, about this kind of advertising ever again. And so, you know, I'm really encouraged about the future of podcasting as a medium. Uh, I hope nobody comes up with the Google um, AdWords for podcasts. Mm -hmm. I know that some companies are trying. Um, Like Libsyn has a service where you can mark – I don't know how many people are actually using it, but you can actually mark your ad spot locations in your MP3 file. And they will on the fly when somebody downloads it insert ads. Um, And that that starts to become the Google text ad of – uh, of podcasting, and that worries me because those aren't personalized. And um, but the great thing about podcasting too is it's just a file. We can't tell who's downloading it. We can't tell who's listening to it. it has none of the surveillance that the web has. That also means that advertisers kind of have to take it on faith. And 
uh, that believe it or not, that's a much better situation for everybody because when advertisers get all the numbers, it invariably becomes a game where the only money they want to spend is for money that results directly in clicks. And that is one way to do advertising, but it's not the only one, only way. And it's I think it's kind of ruined the web in a lot of cases. I agree. So uh, yeah, podcasting. Uh, I think it's getting there, and I I think that we need tell me to more see... about Blago, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to see more like general product advertising as well. You know, I, I oh I agree, I agree, I, and I hope that day will come. I I feel like somebody like the mid roll where our good friend Lex Friedman works now. Um, that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to aggregate a big enough audience that they can go to huge advertisers and say, look at the demographics of this audience. You could buy a cable TV spot or you could buy every podcast in this demographic for a week. And um, I, I hope that 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 will be very interesting when that starts to happen. But I do think it could happen. I think I think you need somebody on the scale. The problem is the ad buyers um, – we, we've experienced that with IDG. Ad buyers um, don't get media. They're, they're taught to look for certain media. So there's like there are ad buyers who buy print. There are ad buyers who buy the web. We have this digital magazine product for PC World. It's not in print anymore. They don't know what to do with it. Is it a website? No. Is it a print magazine? No. Well, then we can't buy it. Um, and then the agencies are often so big that they won't buy anything that doesn't have a huge number attached. They're like, they're, it's not worth their time to buy something that reaches 50,000 people. It's only worth their time if it reaches 500,000 people. And so maybe podcast ad networks like the mid-roll will be more um, likely to aggregate, you know, 100 or 200 of their shows together with great demographic data and then be able to walk into an ad agency and say, look what we can get you and have somebody huge say, yes, that's a great buy. Um, That would be great for the medium as a whole, although – the audience might be like, why is Coca-Cola sponsoring every podcast I listen to this week? That seems suspicious to me. So I don't know. I think there's it needs to be a mix. I think it needs to be a balance. I, I don't know if I would necessarily want to see McDonald's um, yeah. as a sponsor, but I think it would be interesting. And, and I think companies like Harry's and Warby Parker are, are really good examples of this. Like they are regular products that yeah. people need and exactly they're advertising in this space because the pe- people understand them because they sell on the internet right like, and it's it- a good it's a good uh, fit for their business and yes i agree i think i think that that things that aren't mcdonald's that are smaller products still big but are very particularly tied to these audiences these podcast audiences um, th- those are better experiences. Look, some people just hate all advertising, and that's fine. I mean, I get it. But some, but good advertising. Back in the heyday of of, of computer magazines, I mean, people read for the ads as much as the editorial because it'd be like, "What's this product? Tell me. Look at those screenshots. What does it do? I'm really interested in that. I'd never heard of that before." And I feel like good podcast ads are the same way. It's it's if they're good ads, they're something I might be interested in. Information that I don't have. Um, interesting or funny um, stories about them from the hosts who I like. And that's that's incredibly powerful. Mr. Jason Snell, thank you. Mr. Mike Hurley, thank you as always. I think this is like my fourth or fifth time on the various incarnations of this show. I'm glad to be back here in the new place. Thank nice. you. I think it's fifth. It seems, fifth, like, it seems wow. like a good number to me. I know that you were one of like the – in command space, you are one of the people that have been on the most times. Because yeah. I, I just love talking to you. 
Well, it's it's been uh, it's been a pleasure. I always I love talking to you and I love listening to you. That's the funny thing is the first time I did this podcast with you, I I was like I don't even know who this guy is. He's English, okay. And now having listened to you on so many podcasts, that it, it's just it's funny how now I I I feel it's a little strange that um that your other that your other uh, co-hosts aren't here with us. It's like I, I get my special time with Mike, just you and me. Oh, no, they're just sitting there. They're just waiting. Hey, Casey. How's it going? Better <laughs> they, go. They, I have them Steven, on, on Skype on. the whole time yep. just in case we need to start a show. Yeah, well, you never know. You're starting a lot of those these days. I, I try my best. Mr. Snell, where can people keep up to date with what you're up to? Uh, best place is to follow me on Twitter at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L. And uh, if you really want to know more about me, um, I have a very exciting new domain with not much on it, but I wanted a place to post things. And my uh, old magazine site didn't seem like the place. So you can go to snell.zone and visit the Snell Zone. <laughs> or you can go to snellworld.com or jsnell.net. Or, there are a lot of them, but, you know, there's not much there right now. My pizza dough recipe is there. That's I'm a it. very big fan of the Snell Zone. The Snell Zone. Well, you got to once you're in the Snell Zone, you you're in. Out. You're nope. in, locked in. That's right. If you'd like to find uh, the links to today, of everything we've spoken about today, including the Snell Zone, uh, you can find them <laughs> over at relay.fm slash inquisitive slash two. two. My name is Mike Curley. I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. This show broadcasts live, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I'm going to try my best here. So it's uh, 8 p.m. London time, Yes, which is 12... PM San noon, noon Pacific, noon Pacific three, three Eastern. Eastern. That's what we'll go with. We'll go with those. That will work for me. So we'll go with Pacific and Eastern. But you can find the schedule for all of the shows that we do on Relay FM at relay.fm slash schedule. We'll be back next week for another episode of Inquisitive. Thanks again to the Omni Group, Igloo, and Blogger for sponsoring this week's episode. Until then, bye bye. <laughs>